Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, we're working our way through the miracles of Jesus through the lens of Matthew, the Apostle. And we find ourselves right in the middle of a series of of, uh, miracles, three of them actually. And uh, we want to look at the last two. Matthew chapter 9, I failed to look up in the Pew Bible, um, but Matthew chapter 9, with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We want to start in verse 27, and we'll go through uh, into chapter 10. Remember, the chapters were not original when Matthew wrote this, so don't panic. It's okay to read past the chapter division, okay? So chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. They were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute, was brought to him, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. The crowds marveled and said, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. The Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. He saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always you open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it. Our eyes, that we would see your glory in your kingdom and on your throne. And our ears, that we would hear your word and we would heed it. In our mouth, that we would speak the hope of the gospel, first to ourselves, to one another in, in love, and to a dying, dark world that needs to hear the truth of the gospel. May we go in obedience to Christ, open our hands and our feet, that we would be yours. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I wish I had the pictures to show you, but this happened before Facebook and digital pictures were around, and I'm not about to dig through all my parents' photos. But uh, years ago, when I was in high school, uh, just learned to drive. Dad had me take him all the way up north of the border. By that I mean the Ohio River, uh, into you know those people's countries. And and we he bought an old Camaro. Now the emphasis is on old. What I mean is rusty, dilapidated, and not worth the money he spent on it. But he really wanted this thing, and so he 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 bought it and he drove it home. And I had the lead, and and we made it back. And this was dad's new project. And many of you all know, know my father. He is a mechanic. He's a mechanic's kid. He's been working uh, on machines his, his whole life. 
And so he finally got a car that he could soup up. So he'd work a 12-hour shift or more, come home, and work like another 12 hours, it seemed, or at least mom would complain about, on his car, right? All he did was work with his hands. And he loved it. And day by day, you would see he would tear this out and put something in, and he would fix this, change this, soup this up, uh, complain about how much it all costs, and all the things mechanics do whenever they're working on things. And then I remember one day I went to school. The old Camaro was, was in the driveway. Way was it had a sheet over, and that's where he'd been for several days now. And, and I'd almost forgotten about that Camaro. He had, he had it running and stuff. It just 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 wasn't something you really wanted to look at. So he had it covered there in the driveway, and went to school. Got on the bus. It was it was there. When I came home off the bus, it was gone. I thought, oh no, some, someone has stolen Dad's Camaro. It's not even a good looking Camaro. Someone has stolen it. And then about an hour later. After I had my after-school snack of three Tony's pizzas, I, I saw in, at the foot of the driveway a car I'd never seen before. It was a Camaro, just like the one Dad had, but it's not the same Camaro because this one, it was black with a white racing stripe, right? I mean, just beautiful. It sounded, it purred, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like that sort of car. And he, he brought it up. You can see he was strutting. He's about four foot eight, but he's, he's just strutting up the, you know, uh, the driveway there, right? And I thought, that is a nice car. Where'd you get that car? He said, well, I took it down to the shop and I painted it myself. I took off work. Dad don't take off work to save his life. But he took off work just to paint the car. It was finally done. It really is amazing, isn't it, that, that, that God has given us this, this ability to restore things and that we can take things that are old and dilapidated and rusty and remake them, restore them, redeem them, if you will. And God does the same thing. He takes what is broken and dilapidated and, and rusty and, and broken and he restores them as, not to new, but better than they were when they were new. And what chapter 9, as we've seen, is, is the story of God restoring lives. And, and, he, and Matthew lays this out by giving us three uh, sets of, of miracles. You, you get the set of two women in verses 18 to 26. Here we have two blind men in verses 27 to 31. And then we meet a man with two ailments in verses 32 and 33. All with the singular focus that in Christ there is restoration. Known as verses 27 to 31 is restored sight. Now, shortly after he performed the first two miracles we saw last week, <coughs> excuse me, um, he, he now has two men who are crying out to him who are blind. You see there, verse 27, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, of all the miracles Jesus performed, the most common one you will find in the four Gospels is the healing of blind men. Now, blindness was a common malady in the ancient world. Poverty, unsanitary conditions, blowing sand, accidents, war, infections, all of them contribute to its prevalence. In fact, excessive heat and sunlight that you get in the Middle East uh, was another contributing factor. Think about it. Uh, if, if, if you, without sunglasses, you, you are straining your eyes and really damaging them. I think I can prove this. Uh, many of you all know who Christopher Columbus was. Um, he, uh, at the end of his life, lost his eyesight for the simple cause of being on the boat, looking at, at the horizon with the bright sun. 
Much in the same way, again, to go back to my dad, he's lost his hearing because he works at an airport. No matter what he sticks in his ear to block the sound, the, the airplanes and everything else is, is too loud. So, you, so this was a common malady at this time. And Matthew knows that these two men have been following Jesus. Now, just pause there. How do they do that? Now, I've got pretty bad eyesight. And as I like to say when I take off my glasses, you all look a million times better. I mean, I like to point out some of you how much better you look, but I won't embarrass you that much, Mark. But, but I'm saying you look, you look a lot better, right? Now, if, if you're wearing a certain color that, that, that sticks out, I, I could follow you without my glasses. I, I would feel better if I could hold on to, to you, right? Now, these guys are blind. How is it they are following Jesus? And that I actually think is, is, is a point that, that Matthew's trying to make. We saw this in chapter 8, that, that with these miracles comes a narrative of discipleship. And so he's, he's almost as if he's saying, look, if blind men can follow Jesus... What's your excuse, right? I mean, they, they can follow Jesus. Now, you hear that they say that they heard Jesus was coming. They followed him. Wherever, whatever Jesus was saying, they were going. Whatever it took, they were going to follow after Jesus. Again, what is our excuse? And you notice there in verse 27, they are crying out loud. Now, this is a frequently used verb in the New Testament. It literally means to crow like a raven. That is, to, to screech or to exclaim, to wail, or simply to cry aloud and to cry with urgency. Let me give you just a few examples in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 8, we saw this a few weeks ago. Uh, the demons cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? In chapter 14, when uh, the disciples are on a boat, right? We'll see this in a few weeks, Lord willing. And, and there's a storm coming and Jesus is walking on water. You know what the text says? They cried out. They screeched. It's a ghost, right? And that is when you, you jump the opposite direction into the lake. Chapter 21, uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. What are they shouting? What are they crying out? Hosanna, son of David. Chapter 27, Pilate is, is trying to decide if he's going to execute Jesus or not. And, and he, <coughs> excuse me, he cries out, why? What evil has he done? And the crowd shouts even louder, crucify him. Crucify him. So there, there aren't just signing a, an appointment notice for the local faith healer, right? No, no, no. They, they are screaming, right? They don't know where he is. But they're following him saying, save us, heal us, help us. And notice the title they give Jesus, Son of David. Now on the service, this is a language of his heritage, right? He is a descendant of David. But in reality, it means so much more. The first time we see the phrase son of David goes back to Jesus' nativity. In chapter 1, verse 20, Joseph is referred to as the son of David by the angel. In chapter 12, uh, Jesus performs a number of miracles. Again, Lord willing, we'll see in a few weeks. And the crowd asks, can this be the son of David? Notice that the title son of David means more than old man David's boy, right? It means something much more. Chapter 21, the crowds that went before him and they were shouting, right? There's that word, shouting, crying out, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The answer to this meaning actually comes from the Pharisees. In chapter 22 of Matthew, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? 
Whose son is he? Their answer? Son of David. You see, in Matthew's gospel, this is royal language, but it's more than just he's the heir to a throne, but rather he's the heir to an eternal throne. He is king. He is Messiah. So here comes the blind man. They can't see much, but they know this much. This guy who, 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 who heals people, who raises the dead and, and cleanses the demonized, he is Messiah. No wonder then they come to him, wanting more than health reform, right? What they're wanting is divine intervention, so much so that we see it reflected in their faith. Verse 28 and 29, when he entered the house, the blind man came to him and, and Jesus said to them, do you believe, that is, do you have the faith that I am able to do this? And they said, yep, that's the, that's the not the King James version there. They said, yep, sure do. I, I, we believe with, with all that we have. And we've seen this so far, right? Faith as a prerequisite uh, for, for divine intervention. You can see that in chapter 8 with the uh, centurion man. You can see it with the paralytic in chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, Jesus saw his faith and said, son, your, your, your sins are forgiven. And so the word believe is the verb for the noun faith. And the question does seem strange, right? Though the blind men couldn't see the previous miracles, most notably the resuscitation we saw last week, they heard about them. If he can do that, surely he can handle a little blindness. So then again, Jesus restored their lives. And now they're asking Jesus to do it to them personally. And like all the other examples before, Jesus affirms he can do it. He does it. He doesn't conjure up uh, any magical potion. He doesn't have anointing oil or, or uh, a fancy language or speak in another language and do any of that. He just says, get her done and it gets done. I, I, I don't know. He just, he, just, just, he just does it. Well, then we see verse 32 to 34, restored speech. So, so far we've had two women and then we've had two men healed. Now Jesus heals one person but with two oppressive diseases. One is muteness, the other is demonization. Now we've met demon possession already, right? Uh, if you want references, Matthew 4, there's a reference to it. Matthew 8, 16 um, is when he, he, he cast out the demons. And in chapter 8, verse 28 is another summary statement in reference to those. Nevertheless, this, this isn't new, but what is new is the nature of this man's sickness. Verse 32, they were going away. Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So, excuse me. So he, he isn't just demonized. His, the cause of his muteness is related to um, the demon. Now, we assume with muteness came deafness. Now, we're making that assumption. Uh, you don't have to make that assumption at all, but, but I do think there is precedent for that. So, so what is it that Matthew wants us to see here? We won't spend forever on this, this miracle. Is that, yes, the man has a physical malady. Yeah, that's very clear. Uh, much like the blind man, much like the woman with the issue of blood, much like the little girl who had passed away. They have a physical need. But first and foremost, like the paralytic, he has a spiritual need. What he needs isn't just physical restoration, but spiritual restoration. And so Matthew's account is quite brief. In fact, it's briefer than the parallels in Mark and Luke. Verse 32, he's approached. Verse 33, 
he's healed, right? That's, that's it. Uh, he approaches Jesus. Jesus heals him the end. Nothing is said primarily because the man can't speak, right? That's noteworthy. But Jesus sees his faith and heals him. Same pattern remains. Jesus restores. Whether one be dead, diseased, distorted, or demonized, only Jesus can restore these people back. And these individuals would have tried everything. But only Jesus could heal them. So we've seen restored sight and restored speech. In this last section, we need to see a restored staff. I couldn't find of another S word, so we're going to go with staff. And the spirit can't work unless it's alliterated. Restored staff. Again, notice what we've seen. Jesus has restored legs. He's restored the lives of two women, the eyes of two men, and the speech of a demonized man. Chapter 9 is all about the restorating power of Jesus. Now, Matthew puts these stories together so that we can see who Jesus is. He's more than a faith healer. He's the son of David, Messiah. In fact, we know this from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 29, it says, In that day, that is the day of the Lord, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Now, can you think of a passage in the Bible where someone really important heals the blind and the deaf. Isaiah chapter 35, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the wilderness. <coughs> Excuse me, I do not have COVID. I have a test to prove it. According to the test, I do not have COVID. So, so can you think of a story there where the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk? Can you think of a story where all those are put together? I can. Psalm 146.8, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Can you think of a chapter where the demonized are liberated, the eyes of the blind are seen, and people fall down and worship Messiah? I can't. It's not an accident that as Matthew's reading his Bible and he, he's reflecting on the story of Jesus, he's presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews and he's saying you need to see he's more than just a, <coughs> excuse me, he, he's more than just a guy that sits upon a throne. He's the eternal son of David. He's the Messiah. And so he puts together these narratives to say, here he is. What are you going to do about it? And that's the question, isn't it? What are we going to do about it? After all, Matthew is drawing us to that conclusion. Notice it there in uh, verse uh, 36, right? So verse 35, he, he does more miracles, goes to synagogues, proclaims the gospel, heals every disease. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because um, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And, and, and then he says, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. That's the point, right? It's one thing for us to see from a distance. Look what Jesus can do. The question then is, is now, how does Jesus go about and do this? We believe he can restore sight. We believe he can restore speech. We believe in the gospel reference there in verse 35. The question for us now is, what now? And the answer is very clear. First of all, we need to see ourselves as one of these people who are suffering. 
We are blind by our sin and everything else that, that needs to be restored. We are deaf to the word of God until God opens our ears. We are mute far too often than we should be. We are lame. We are, are, are in bondage. We are these things. But then Christ comes. He doesn't see as merely as the blind or the sick or the lame or the broken or the, or the terrible past who have done terrible things. He sees us in his eyes that can and shall be restored by faith. But we also need to see ourselves as those who are sent to the broken with the gospel of restoration. It's not an accident, is it, that after this, this series of, 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 of miracles, two women, two men, an individual with two ailments, followed by a sending out of the disciples. Harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray that the Lord would raise up laborers. And what do you get in chapter 10? The first laborers' actual names. And they're given there. All 12 of the disciples are given there. And what authority do they have? The authority of over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. You see the connection in between what happens in chapter 9 and the introduction of chapter 10 with the sending of the 12. Christ sends us into a broken world, dilapidated, rusty, and old and broken, to con continue the ministry that Christ launched. These 12 men Jesus sent out, it tells us. In other words, Jesus saves in order to, Descend. Now, there's no, 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 no question about it that we live in a very broken world. You only have to have eyes to see. In fact, I'm not even sure you need to have eyes to see how broken this world is. And often what we do is we spend our lives thinking, well, what, what, what can be done about it? What hope is there? Just going to keep spiraling out of control. What, what can I do about my neighborhood, my community, my family, my marriage? Here is Jesus, the one who restores what is broken back to where it's better than it was when it was brand new. And he sends the church, you and me, to be part of that journey. God calls us into the world. You know, when my dad restored the old Camaro, he was, he was proud of it, as he should have been. It never crossed our minds to let it sit in the driveway, freshly painted and restored under a cover. That never crossed our mind. You cover it before it's restored because it's hideous. But once it's been fully restored, well, it's time to take it out for a drive. It was fixed to be driven. It was restored to be shown. So too, dear Christian, you have not been saved to sit on a bench. You have been saved and called to action. The question is, will you and I be obedient to that? It's good news, isn't it, that the harvest is always plentiful? That's good news to hear, isn't it? Because the temptation is to say, well... Well, there's, no matter how we try, there's not going to be any response to the gospel. No, no, no. The harvest is plentiful. The challenge 
Where will we find the workers? If only I can think of a place near my home where people gather on at least a weekly basis who worship Jesus, risen from the dead, and believe that he and he alone is the only hope for this world. If only I could think of a location where such people gather on a regular basis. And together, we could hold each other up, send each other out, and gather again to do it again. If only I could think of such a place. And church, isn't that why we're here? We gather to worship, and we gather to go. The harvest is plentiful. That's the good news. The question is, where are the laborers? Let's pray.